Hello, and welcome to Kathy Williams DeRees Muses. I'm your host, Kathy Williams DeRees, and this is my third podcast and the second in my series on Renaissance diminutions. So, for those that missed the first in the series, uh, the Renaissance period of music I'm referring to goes from roughly 1400 to 1600. Uh, here and thereabouts, and is a very exciting time, not only in music, but also in religion and science and architecture and literature. Uh, Shakespeare was around about this time, Martin Luther and the Reformation. Lots of exciting things as the world was coming out of the Middle Ages. So, um, what is a diminution? Well, it's a kind of Renaissance uh, ornamentation. It's a compositional device. It was a way for the musicians back then to make very, very familiar pieces, um, almost entirely new compositions. Uh, Basically taking a a simple piece, such as a motet, and adding lots of little notes uh, in between. Uh, And of course, no two pieces uh, of no two renditions of the same piece would be the same and that's that's the very exciting thing about early music is that you're expected to add so much more to what was on the page so what i'm going to play you is part of a motet um, by Josquin Dupré he was a French uh, Renaissance composer Um, And then I'm going to play you um, a composition um, based um, on this motet, which would be Ave Maria, the second part of Paternoster. And uh, he adds uh, diminutions to all six parts and makes it uh, quite an interesting piece. I mean, the original motet is absolutely gorgeous. It's a wonderful piece of music. I've just finished recording it. I'm very excited about it. But um, let me tell you a little bit a little bit about Josquin Dupré. So his dates around about 1450, 1455, and we know the date of his death as the 27th of August, 1521. So he was French, and uh, he was the most famous European composer between Guillaume de Fay and Palestrina. And he was considered to be the central figure of the Franco-Flemish school and was widely considered by music scholars to be the first master of high Renaissance style of um, a vocal style called polyphony, um, which was only just getting started uh, during his lifetime. So during the 16th century, he actually acquired the reputation as the greatest composer of his age. And his mastery of technique and expression was imitated, admired by everybody. Um, And even writers such as the aforementioned Martin Luther uh, wrote about his reputation and fame. Um, And Martin Luther actually declared... He is the master of the notes. They must do as he wills. As for the other composers, they have to do as the notes will. So he was a Renaissance Mozart, I suppose. 
Um, and a couple of theorists, uh, such as Zalino, um, held his style as that best representing perfection. And actually, he was admired so much that um, other composers who won't, weren't well, so well known actually um, attributed their compositions to him <laughs> to increase their sales. So more than 250 works were attributed to him. And it was only after the advent of um, modern scholarship that, uh, yeah, some of these uh, pieces weren't written by him, they could, uh, they could tell. Um, and this was based on stylistic features and also um, evidence from the actual written manuscript. But uh, what's interesting is that in spite of his massive musical reputation, which um, endured until the uh, beginning of the Baroque era, um, 1600, uh, 16, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 1600, um, actually we don't know a lot about his life and virtually nothing about his personality. So in that respect, he's a, he's a bit of a Will Shakespeare. Um, and the only uh, surviving work which may be in his own hand is some graffito on the wall of the Sistine Chapel. And there's only one contemporary mention of his character, uh, which was in a letter to Duke Ercole um, of Ferrara. Uh, what's interesting, actually, is the lives of dozens of um, less revered Renaissance composers are better documented than Josquin. So he wrote both sacred and secular music, um, especially vocal music, so masses, uh, motets, chansons, um, and uh, during the 16th century, he was praised for both his supreme melodic gift and use of ingenious technical devices, and you'll hear these. So, um, in order to work out which pieces he actually wrote and those that were attributed to him, um, they found that um, Josseguin liked to solve um, sort of little technical difficulties and compositional problems um, in different ways in successive compositions. So if one piece uh, didn't have a lot of ornamentation, then another piece would have a lot of it. Um, so he was written of uh, by Heinrich Glarian in 1547 that he was not only a magnificent virtuoso, or you could read between the lines, uh, and it could also be translated as show-off, but also being capable of being a mocker, as in um, using satire quite effectively. So um, while the focus um, in recent years has been to remove music from um, those works attributed to him and reattribute it to uh, contemporaries, um, the remaining music is just some of the most famous and enduring of the Renaissance. That's, um, that's Jos Gain. Um and he uh, he was in the um, he was in uh, the service actually of the Schwarzer families. Um, didn't stay long in Milan because in 1499 uh, Louis the Twelfth captured Milan. So the Sforza, um, you might recall the Sforza family was, um, I think, quite high up uh, in the Vatican at one point. 
Um, actually, he was um, a member of the papal choir underneath Pope Innocent VIII and then under the Borgia Pope, Alexander VI. So there was a, there was a Borgia connection there. So um, I, won't, I won't bore you too much with his life because um, this podcast uh, is about the music. But um, he lived in a transitional stage of music history, a time when musical styles were rapidly changing. And that's because musicians were able to move through different regions of Europe a lot more easily. So many northern musicians moved to Italy, which is considered the heart of the Renaissance, uh, because uh, that's where the money was. Uh, that's where the nobility were patronising the arts. So while in Italy these um, composers were influenced by um, the native Italian styles and brought it back home with them. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing, um, you know, what was going on. It must have been such an exciting time um, in the Renaissance. And uh, it's interesting, the masses he wrote, there were the Cantus Firmus Mass. So what that is, is they're a pre-existing tune and they base it on that. Um, and that's in one, vo one voice, so we call it the Cantus Firmus, uh, probably coming from like a Gregorian chant or something. I don't know if you've ever sort of been into a, a high mass and uh, when you sing the psalm, you have to sing it to a Cantus Firmus. So... Da 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 And so one voice does that and the rest of it's based around that but with um, the other voices sort of freely composed. Then you have a paraphrase mass where the pre-existing tune is used freely in all the voices, many, many variations. Then the parody mass in which um, the pre-existing multi-voice song appears in whole or part with material from all voices in use, not just the tune, um, and so on, uh, like a, a, a canon in which the entire mass is based on canonic techniques. So when you think of canon, think row, row, row your boat or Parkle Bell's canon. Row, row, row your boat down the stream. Yeah, I'm not going to sing. So, um, yeah, lots of, um, oh, wow, I could, I could go into um, how they write these canonic masses. Whoa, this looks fantastic. So, um, Josquin's motet style varied from strictly homophonic set settings, and this is where everyone sings sort of basically the same thing at the same time, to very highly ornate contrapuntal fantasias where, well, nobody is singing the same time as anyone else. It's all, t uh, tell you what, I've tried to play a few of these with my recorder orchestra and it's, um, they're not easy to play. So, um, yeah, oh, look, I could really go into this um, and we'll probably come across Josquin again and um, I'll go through um, what a motet is um, throughout the series. But, um, so the motet I'm going to play for you is called Ave Maria and I'll give you I'll give you the, um, the translation. So, Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum benedicta tu. As I kneel before you, as I bow my head in prayer, take this day, make it yours and fill me with your love. All I have I give you, every dream and wish are yours, Mother of Christ, Mother of mine, present them to my Lord. 
as I kneel before you and I see your smiling face, every thought, every word is lost in your embrace. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum benedicta tu. So here is the motet Ave Maria for six voices by Josquin Dupre.
hope you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed recording it. Um, the recording's not perfect. Um, I never make my recordings perfect because I always like to go back later on and tinker with them. But um, let me tell you a little, about, a little bit about Antonio de Cabazon. And he's the bloke that uh, has written the diminutions in all parts, which is interesting, um, on that motet that we just listened to. So he was a Spanish organist and composer. Um, he was born in 1510 and then died in Madrid in March, uh, on March 26, 1566. He lived to a reasonable age for back then. So he actually uh, went blind in infancy, but uh, went to Palencia in about 1521. So when he was 11, and he studied with the cathedral organist Garcia de Baeza and with Tomás Gómez. And he was appointed organist to the court of Emperor Charles V and Empress Isabella in 1526. And after her death, Cabazon entered the service of Prince Philip and accompanied him to Italy, Germany and the Netherlands uh, between 1548 and 51. Then he went to England in 1554 and then returned to Spain in 1556. So um, as I said uh, just before um, we listened to the motet, uh, there was a lot of travelling going around uh, in Europe at that time uh, with these composers. And uh, he remained court organist until his death. So um, his keyboard style greatly influenced the development of organ composition on the continent and composers for the Virgin in England, and uh, Pedro actually called in the Spanish bark. There you go. So um, he had a series called Libro de Cifra Nueva in 1557, and that contains the earliest editions of his works. Um, and it was reprinted in 1944. So he had a son, and um, Hernando, um, who published his instrumental works as the Obra de Musica para la Tecla uh, in Madrid in 1578. And, um, uh, and has arrangements, um, which you're hearing uh, in this series, of motets of up to six parts by Josquin and other Franco-Flemish composers and variations on tunes of the day. So here we are, we're going to hear Cabasson's uh, reworking of the Ave Maria by Shoska with some diminutions in there.
hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed uh, recording it for you. So in the next series um, I have on Renaissance diminutions, um, we're still going um, with the um, Cabazon um, project um, and we're going to be looking at another uh, Frankish composer, French composer, uh, Philippe Vedelot. And three of his pieces are the Ultimi Miei Sospiri and the Ardenti Miei Sospiri. Um, and I've got the original motets for them. Um, unfortunately, I don't have um, the original motet for the Sancta Maria Virgo Virginum. Can't find it anywhere. But um, hopefully we'll have enough time uh, to um, explore all three. I won't talk so much. I'll just let you listen to the music and as you listen to this series we're gradually going to find out more of uh, about these composers um, about the time i'll try and find something interesting each time to uh, keep you uh, coming back and um, we'll start moving on to other writers of diminutions uh, such as bassano and dalla casa so until next time please stay well See you later. Bye.